and Jeremy looks over the bank first and he looks down there. There he is. There's something wrong with him. <laughs> I said, what do you mean there's something wrong with him? And I look and here is two antlers are touching. Hey guys, welcome to the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Danny Ferris, and today me and Hoyt Marketing Manager Jeremy Eldridge have one of my best buddies on as a guest, uh, Kurt Wells, editor of Bowhunter Magazine, host of Bowhunter TV on the Outdoor Channel and the Sportsman's Channel. Uh, Kurt, how you doing, buddy? Pretty good, Danny. Well, good. Um, Kurt and I go back for a long ways. We've worked to, we worked together for a long time over at Bowhunter, and uh, um, he we call him the uh, over there. At, Bo Hunter, the the president of the uh, of the of the killing department. <laughs> <laughs> well, some years and, I'm the vice president. Depends on yeah. how many years I have. <laughs> well, today we wanted to talk about um, we wanted to talk about do-it-yourself caribou hunting, and it just so happens that last year uh, Kurt and Jeremy went on a DIY caribou hunt up in Alaska together that they excluded me from and <laughs> by design, by design. <laughs> no, uh, I was supposed to be busy with football games and COVID hit and messed up football season. And it turned out I could have gone and I'm still so irritated that I wasn't able to get onto that trip with you two. Um, you know, by the time we found out that football season was going to be messed up and I could, could have actually gone. It was, it was too late. And, but you two went on a, a pretty crazy do it yourself caribou hunt. And before we get into the ins and outs of, you know, how you can go on a do it yourself caribou hunt, which is a lot more feasible than what some people might think. Um, and Kurt actually knows quite a bit about it. Um, why don't you guys tell us just a little bit about how your hunt went? And, you know, that, that hunt was featured on an episode of Bowhunter TV. Um, and has that episode aired yet, Kurt? No, that won't be till third quarter. Uh, okay. it'll actually be two episodes, two parts, two part but, episode uh, yeah. coming up in, in probably August. Um, yeah, sometime in there, July or August. Um, so, uh, I guess we can't give give away too many spoilers, but uh, <laughs> tell us tell us kind of what went down on your caribou hunt. Well, my my initial goal was to complete my super slam, or not super slam, but caribou slam, and yeah. uh, I'd taken the other four species, and I just needed the Alaska barren ground caribou, and and uh, so I started planning this trip, and uh, it was a DIY, and it's kind of one of the things where want to take a buddy along so I, I gave jeremy a call and and uh, there was very little hesitation there uh, <laughs> i can remember standing in my back lot at the lake and asked him if he was interested and he only needed a few seconds to say he was ready to ready to rock yeah <laughs> so yeah. It seemed like it was about a year ago i mean it was about this it was yeah late winter early spring that you called and and uh yeah i mean i i've only been caribou hunting one other time and that was an outfitted hunt and a little bit different with this being a do-it-yourself hunt so 
you know, I, I didn't know what it would entail, but yeah, it only took me a second. Like, I'm yeah, and that was that was in March, and uh, that's about when your planning has to start, if not sooner, for this type of hunt. Because you know, a lot of the hunting we do for bowhunter TV is guided and outfitted, and and, and much of that has to do with time constraints. Uh, you don't have time to spend two weeks locating animals and all the other stuff. So you, you go on guided hunts, but I still love DIY hunts. That's how I learned to hunt was DIY elk hunting for 12, 13 years. And and whenever I get a chance, I still like to do it because of the freedom it involves and all that. But there's a lot of logistics, especially with a, a caribou hunt in Alaska. And yeah. so I got started on that right away. And uh, next thing I knew, we were meeting in the Anchorage airport, and uh, we were going from there. So tell us a little bit about the hunt. You guys got flown how far out in bush planes or smaller planes? And, uh, and then, heck, you had, some, you had some weather difficulties on that one, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, well, we, uh, we booked with uh, Jared Cummings from Golden Eagle Outfitters out of Kotzebue. And, uh, you know, he'd just, given us our weight restrictions and all that stuff. Just for the flights you booked for him, not just for, for the, just yeah. the flight to get in a transporter. Yeah. And, dropping, uh, us, dropping us off. Yep. And, uh, we were going into the no attack national preserve, which in order to film in there, you have to have a filming permit. You got to go through a big permitting process and pay so much per day just to be allowed to be in there with the camera. And, uh, so, uh, but it was about, I'd say 60 to 60 minute, 70 minute flight out of Kotzebue, um, over some just incredible wilderness. I mean, it was, I mean, Jerry, Jeremy and I were both like, holy man, this, it's just goes on for miles and miles oh, yeah. of nothingness. Oh know? Yeah. And it was everything from like rugged peaks, flying through the peaks. Then you'd get out over tundra and lakes and then more peaks. And we saw moose and wolves and doll sheep. And I mean, we saw everything on that flight. It was pretty right. cool. Except caribou. <laughs> for about the first uh, 65 minutes of the flight, uh, there was virtually no caribou running around that I could see. Yeah. And, and then pretty... even when he dropped us off, we didn't. I mean... Yeah. All, all along, all, all year, the pilot's telling us, you know, I'm going to drop you off where I'm seeing caribou. I don't know where you're going to hunt yet. I'll, I'll let you know when you get here. And so when he's been telling us that all year and then he flies us to our camp and we saw like four caribou, I was like, oh, <laughs> that's them, huh? That's the four. <laughs> yeah, we're kind of quiet, you know, and he, he banks hard left and drops us on a gravel bar and we kind of get out of the plane and we're not saying too much. And, and he knew, he knew what we were thinking. And yeah. Jared says, don't worry, the caribou are about 10 miles away and they're headed this way. So I didn't want to drop you right on top of the caribou because then they'll be gone in two days and that'll be the right. end of it. So he knew what he was talking about, but uh, we, we were having some second thoughts there. Yeah, De definitely. <clears throat> and then uh, oh, yeah. we set up camp on the, uh, you know, we tried to find a careful, carefully selected spot in the alders there where we could set up our camp and, and it was drizzling a little bit and kind of cloudy, but it wasn't wasn't too bad. So 
it'd been a really long day. So uh, we had our mountain house, couldn't hunt because we flew that day and had our mountain house and hot chocolate and hit the sack. <laughs> yeah. And it was a nice day though. To your point, it was maybe a slight drizzle, but it was a nice day. It was warm. We're just in light jackets and you know, I'm thinking this is, it's end of September. So you'd think yeah. it should be pretty decent weather. And it was, and it had been raining for four or five days before we got there. So everything was wet, but, but it was nice the day we landed and went to bed. And when we woke up, it was like, we we're in a different place, man. It was, really? it was so cold. Oh my yeah. gosh, man. It, yeah. it, it turned <laughs> the, when we landed that we were right on the banks of the Noatak river. And then it was, you know, it was no ice in it at all. You wouldn't expect there to be, but by the next night, dude, there were ice chunks in that river coming down. It got so cold, so <laughs> cold on us. And the wind yeah. blew all night long. The tarp oh. we'd set up for our makeshift kitchen just flapped like crazy. And, and by morning, I'm sure it was in the teens. And, yeah, uh, it was... and uh, we were just in our little individual tents. And yeah. uh, we come out of there and we had to pry our boots open just to get them on. And, 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 you know, when you, when you decided where we were hunting was about a hundred miles north of the Arctic circle. Yeah. And so, uh, when you go on September 21st, a hundred miles north of the Arctic circle, you're, you're rolling the dice. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people go in August. I don't like dealing with velvet antlers. Yeah. Um, early September is probably a good idea. But they always say the later you go, the bigger the bulls. But uh, uh, so we decided to go the 21st. And I, I was I was shaking my head. Boy, the next morning I was thinking, man, what did I get us into here? Water, <laughs> water pumps or filters are froze up. Uh, and uh, we are freezing our hind ends off. But fortunately, the sun came out. And that was our only consolation. But actually, for the entire trip, I don't think there was more than a couple hours one day where it got above 32. Yeah, oh, no, wow. I, I had my water filter inside my parka and, you know, staying warm so we could pump water whenever we needed to. Because if it wasn't in your parka, <laughs> it would freeze up and you couldn't pump water. Yeah, Jeremy yeah, was no. doing the marsupial thing with our water filter just to keep <laughs> us hydrated. Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, we were limited to 80 pounds. And so it's not like we had an extra duffel bag full of warm or cold weather gear. I mean, it was, yeah. it, it you, was. Your it, gear selection is super, it. super important. Yeah and, yeah. and he told us to limit our, ourselves to 80 pounds. And I told the cameraman that, but they've got so much stuff. They, they just can't do it that way, especially not for an eight day hunt. But he shows up with 250. Oh God! So we ended up booking another flight just to get everything in. But had oh. Jeremy and I known that, we'd have taken a lot more comfort items along if yes, we'd have known that that was sure. going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So, it was. It was cold. That caught me off guard for sure. And it's yeah. not that. I mean, I've hunted in cold. We've all hunted in cold, but there was nowhere to get out of it. You At can't escape. Yeah. You didn't go yeah. get in your truck on your drive home and get warm or go back to camp and get in the cabin or whatever, man. It was, it was go back to camp and get in your little backpacking tent. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so that's, I think the hardest, what was the hardest part is you just couldn't get out of it, man. You could not get warm anywhere. It got dark like yeah. around eight thirty or so. So we're in bed 
and getting 12 <laughs> hours of sleep by the time we get up in the morning. And because uh, you didn't just want to sit around, the wind just blew like crazy for the first two days to go along yeah. with the 20 degree temps. Yeah. yeah. And getting 12 hours of sleep. I don't know that we got 12 hours of sleep. You're in your sleeping bag for 12 hours. Yeah, right, yeah, that'd be right, a right. description. You can't sleep for 12 hours, and you're freezing in your sleeping bag. You're shivering the whole night. Yeah. Oh, so. with all, all your clothes on inside your sleeping bag? Yep. Well, well, there's an argument to be made if you should wear all your clothes, right? Because, I mean, some people say you just wear a base layer. And yep. Some people say wear clothes, and I, I don't know which one's right, but. Well, well, I can tell I can tell you I've never done it in the Arctic like that. I've I've been in a backpacking tent up in the Arctic, but I I've never been really impacted by freezing cold temperatures. But I've been impacted on elk hunts by freezing cold temperatures where I didn't have a sleeping bag that was adequate, and you wear all your layers. <laughs> That's when <laughs> when. Yeah. It, it, Having more insulation in there is just better, period, you know, if 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 you're cold, you know. And I um, crawled in one night with wet pants and went right in my sleeping bag with my wet wet pants. I mean, they weren't soaking wet, but they were pretty yeah. damp. And I was nice and dry in the morning. Uh, really? It wasn't necessarily huh. that warm all night, but my pants were dry. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, that was kind of nice. But we each decided, instead of taking a big heavy tent where we all three slept in there, we just each took our own individual tent. So I'm in this little hilleberg that I can barely sit up in and uh, <laughs> uh, trying to get dressed uh, and undressed <laughs> inside of there was uh, quite an adventure when you're 6'5". <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, Kurt's not a small dude. <laughs> it's like Big Bird inside of a inside of a little bitty tent, man. Um, so how'd the, how'd the hunt end up going? Well, the first day, you know, we're out there and uh, looking for caribou, obviously, and we're sort of in a little river valley, and there's a high bank to our south. So obviously the first thing we do is go hike on top of that high bank and start glassing. And, and we actually started seeing caribou right away, but they were all on the other side of the no attack. Mm, up the and, river. Uh, I thought maybe we should go down there and see if we can cross that somehow, because we had, we had brought <laughs> Sims, uh, uh, breathable chest waders that I've used on three brown bear hunts. And then, uh, now, and this is the fourth hunt that I've used those. And, but maybe we can wade the river and get across somewhere, find a riffle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not so no. <laughs> no. The river was bigger, deeper, and faster than we thought it was. So there was no Oh, fast, too. That thing must have been 12 yeah. miles an hour. I mean, that thing was moving. It would have been instant yeah. death if we had tried to hike across <laughs> that river. <laughs> so then I, I contacted Jared with uh, InReach and told him, man, all the caribou on the other side of the river. He says, well, do you want me to fly in a boat? And I thought, hmm, let's see, boat, $1,800. No, well, we'll tough it out. There's no there's no uh, visible or obvious reason why we're only seeing caribou on the other side. They got to be on our side, too, so we'll wait them out. So we turned down the boat and just kept hunting. Huh. <laughs> but yeah, we didn't, we didn't uh, get any opportunities the first day, and then we got no. back and and the second day, we started seeing a few caribou, but they were still on the other side of the river. So for two days, I'm starting to get kind of nervous. And then uh, uh, 
we're pretty wore out, freezing cold, so we go back to back to have supper, get supper started. Yeah. And uh, sunshine, we're just standing around there, and still cold. Yeah, still, still freezing. Cold. Yeah. <laughs> And it's still windy. The sun did come out, but it was still cold, and it was still windy as can be. Got our waders off, and we're kind of getting ready to settle in. I look up on top of the bank, and here there's caribou streaming over the top of the bank and down into the valley. And uh, before I could even say there's caribou, Jeremy's running for his bow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they were a few hundred yards from camp is all. I mean, it was. Yeah. In the, it, man, after going a couple of days with freezing cold and not seeing any caribou, to see this huge migration coming over, you know, the hill right by camp, it was like, oh man, we got to make this happen. Yeah, got to make this happen. So yeah, yeah, it was quite the sight. Sun shining, you know, and they all pile over and they all stop at this little creek at the bottom, like they were looking for some fresh water to drink instead of the scum that they have up in the tundra, you know. And, Sure. And uh, Jeremy, Jeremy had first right of refusal, and and uh, we took off through those alders. And next thing you know, we're crawling on our hands and knees with the cameraman behind us, and the whole herd's coming up out of the bottom. <clears throat> yeah, and that was it. Was, I didn't know what to expect. Like you, they would come over the hill. You know, you'd see thirty or forty come over the hill, and then then they then you wouldn't see any. And you're like, okay, this is the, you know, this is 50, 50 caribou coming along. We need to shoot one of these. And then some more would come over the hill. Right. And they would stop. And so you weren't sure when they were going to stop for good, right? And so it's not like I was going to wait around and right for the next herd, right? We're trying to get in on these caribou because <clears throat> you just don't, you can't see up on top of the hill where they're coming from. You can't see if there's more coming or not. And so you got to make it, and they don't stop. I mean, these things. I, that's the strangest thing about caribou. They never hold still. Yeah. They're just always moving. And so, um, so yeah, we sneak in there and we're getting, we're easily within 80, 90 yards of these caribou, but you know, we got to get another 40, 50 yards closer. And so we just keep sneaking, keep trying to get in there and we bumped a few, but the funny thing about caribou is they don't really, they don't have any way to alarm. <laughs> you know, if you bump elk, they oh, start yeah. barking and, and every elk in the valley knows something's up or white tails right. will blow or whatever. But these caribou, they don't warn their buddies behind them at all. They just run off and <laughs> turn around. And if you're not chasing them, they go back to their normal thing. And the other guys have to fend for themselves that are coming along, you know. And so we did that. We, exactly that. We got in there. We bumped the first few that saw us. and But we just kept moving, got in position. So when the rest of them came by, we'd hopefully be in a good spot. And and uh, there was a lot of little bulls, and and then there was one, you know, one coming. I like he had a cool rack. I really wanted to shoot him, so I told Kurt, "I'm going to shoot that one right there." If he stops, and he got out there and finally stopped, <laughs> and and we ranged him, and then I couldn't pull my bow back. Oh my gosh! Because <laughs> of cold, so cold, so cold. Oh, and man. I was sitting down, sitting on my butt, and it was so cold, and I couldn't get it back. So I had to move up to my knees and then I tried to jerk it back and it still wouldn't come. And by now this bowl that I'd picked out was sitting there looking at me like, what, what the heck's going on? What, what yeah. is that over there? So I'm yeah. like, I got to get this bow back. 
I look over at Kurt and he's like, what is your problem, man? <laughs> he's like, pull that bow back. So anyway, I give it one big heave, everything I got left in my freezing cold body and I get it, get it back. And I, and I ranged on, you know, I'm on him and, and let the arrow go. And, and I hadn't compensated for the wind. It was so windy and it, so it blew me a little forward and, and killed a little bit of my velocity. So I hit a little low and a little forward, but yeah, but luckily it, it kind of, it, it bounced right up into his heart. I mean, it, it didn't look like it was going to be a kill shot. Kurt and I were both worried at first, but he only ran out there about 20 yards and started acting real sick, real fast. And, yeah. And went down. So, uh, yeah, it kind of hit the humorous and glance up into the heart, you know, and, but it was a heck of a shot and that kind of wind and, and, you know, it, that's what a lot of people fail to realize when they're back at the range, drawing their bow when they're in perfect position and everything. Um, you start trying to shoot or draw when you're kneeling or sitting down or in any way twisted up. You yeah. need some reserve strength to do that. First yeah. elk I ever called in, I was shooting an 85 pound Cougar Magnum and he comes running in right to me and I'm hiding behind a log and I can't get it drawn back. Yeah. And I had to almost stand up just to get drawn. But any, or even if you have to shoot straight down out of a tree stand, it requires more strength. And, and then you add the cold, the bone chilling cold on top of that. And so I knew why he couldn't draw, but it was still the caribou <laughs> kind of was like a puppy where they kind of tilt their head one way or the other. Like what's going on over there? <laughs> <laughs> but he that caribou dropped i think it was what 230 yards from the tents oh wow yeah right wow. yeah so yeah that's that that's nice that's he went, nice he went down and we walked over there to him and i don't know we took some pictures and you know celebrated a little bit and and the caribou were still pouring over the hill wow it was, i mean there must have been a thousand caribou that night you know and yeah so i told kurt like dude go kill one he's like no no let's get yours broken down there's so many caribou here we'll we'll kill one in the morning and i'm like <laughs> okay that's <laughs> fine <laughs> <laughs> and so we we got my caribou all broken down and and uh got the first load back to camp and and uh got up the next morning expecting to see a thousand caribou in the valley and there was nothing. <laughs> They're gone. <laughs> there was nothing. Yeah. Oh, oh man. man. That's one of them deals I didn't want it to end, you know. I thought, man, if I shoot one of these bulls, we'll be done in two days on an eight-day hunt. Yeah. And uh, I thought, I don't want it to be done that fast. But uh, by three days later, I was thinking, uh, I probably should have went after one of those bulls. <laughs> And of course, you always have those second thoughts, you know, on any hunting trip, you're, you're always rolling the dice on uh, what you should let go and what you shouldn't. And Yeah. But yeah, we went, we went three, uh, actually four more days uh, without an opportunity. Really? Um, and most of those days, we weren't hardly seeing caribou at all. Freezing. Anywhere. You know? oh. And uh, I had the impression that they had gone through. Yeah. And, but uh I touched base with Jared, and he said, no, 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 they haven't even started yet. Don't worry. They'll come. They'll come. And, of course, he's a good outfitter. He's trying to keep sure. uh, keep uh, his 
his clients in a positive mo- mood and and thinking positive. So just stay um, there and chill, literally. Yeah, just chill. <laughs> yeah, we were chilling all right. Well, of course, Jeremy, yeah, he had some extra time on his hands. So one afternoon, he goes back to camp while we stayed up on the ridge glassing. And we didn't know this, but he's down there becoming a a, uh, a chef, and he's he's rustling around in our food supply and comes up with uh, some ingredients for a marinade. And of uh-huh. course, we had some oh, yeah. caribou tenderloins and backstraps. So, oh, uh, so you have to tell us your recipe there. Yeah, well, so for the first few days we couldn't get a fire going because it had rained so much before we got there everything was soaking wet but then the first couple days we're there was so windy it started to dry some wood out so we were able to get a fire going and and um so yeah i went back to camp one day i I, was this it was the day after i killed my bull i went back to camp early because there was we had to i had to get a little bit more meat hauled back to camp from where i'd killed my bull so kurt and the camera guy stayed up hunting and and i went back to camp and got all the meat back to camp and i was like looking at those back straps i'm like it's only been three days but man i'm already tired of mountain house like we, oh, yeah we, yeah we gotta cook some steak you know so uh the camera guy he brought a bottle of sriracha uh-huh and kurt and i had brought peanut butter and honey because we were gonna make peanut butter and honey tortillas because the bread would get smashed we brought tortillas and like this will be a good lunch so we had honey and we had uh, sriracha, and then I'd brought some olive oil because I wasn't sure if we'd be catching any fish and we could fry up a fish. So we had olive oil and salt and pepper, sriracha, and honey, and I just mixed all that in a Ziploc bag. And then I took those tenderloins and sliced up the back straps and put them in there and just let them marinate till those guys got back to camp that night. And then we cooked those up over the fire. And I'm it's not a, sure if it really was the best steak I've ever had in my life, but it should <laughs> tasted like it at that time. Yeah. It was You're, unreal. Factor so, in the ambiance, it was definitely the best steak. It was by far the best caribou I ever had, but it was the best steak of any kind at that moment. <laughs> you know, I mean, it yeah. was, I mean, uh, we even uh, memorized the recipe and the, proportions and i went home and made the same thing at home and it was good but it wasn't a campfire in a no attack wilderness in Alaska. Yeah. yeah 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 well kurt do you want to talk about whether you converted or not or do you want to save that for the show what it, it it's up to you uh, your yours i know that there's some interesting stuff about what happened with yours oh uh well <clears throat> It was sort of the opposite of what happened with Jeremy's because uh, we get back to camp on day six and uh, we're standing around and the cameraman's taking his boots off and I'm taking my boots off, got the waders off and and, uh, pretty much defeated, you know. Yeah. And sun's getting low. And instead of me seeing the caribou up on top of the hill, Jeremy sees the caribou and they're down a little farther. They're about half a mile, three quarters of a mile. And uh, he says, there's caribou coming over the hill. And here they come. And I mean, this was a full blown migration right over the bank of this valley or the lip of this valley and dropping in. And I'm looking at my cameraman half undressed and I'm looking how low the sun is. And I'm thinking, 
oh man, he's going to go crazy if I tell him we got to go. And so uh-huh. I was hesitating. And, then, and once again, I'm thinking, oh, they'll be there in the morning. <laughs> but uh, Jeremy's like, Kurt, you can't, you got to go. You got to go. You, I'll be really disappointed if you don't go. And <laughs> so I looked at the cameraman and I said, put those boots back on and, and uh, away we went. We didn't even bother with the waiters. Yeah. Uh, we just put the boots on and we just took off. And, uh, and I, you know, when you hunt for TV, you're always fighting the camera light. Oh, and yeah. uh, you lose probably 15 minutes, 20 minutes maybe. And there are no legal shooting hours in Alaska. But uh, there's ethical shooting hours mm-hmm. and there's TV shooting hours. So anyway, but we took off and uh, went as fast as we could. I was kind of surprised we got there as quick as we did. Caribou were just streaming over this hill. And uh, our last little bush was about 200 yards away. And uh, there, there, I mean, there's no way to go any farther without these caribou seeing us. Yeah, But it sort of dawns on you that all the rest of the herd that's migrating is up on the tundra, on the flats. They can't see the caribou that have dropped into the valley. So, and as Jeremy already alluded to, they don't warn each other. They just yeah. do, they just go about their business. So the logical thing was to make a mad dash and... And Jeremy, of course, he's he's been done for a while, and he's he wants to be you know in on the action too. And he says, "You want me to go along with you to range?" And I said, "Heck yeah!" I mean, any bow hunter knows that if you got somebody to range for you in those situations, it's huge because you don't have to range and then draw your bow. Sure. So we took off, and I kind of wanted the cameraman to stay back, but our cameramen don't do that because <laughs> they know what happens when they stay back; they get burned, and things don't work. So. We took off and we get to this last little patch of brush before these caribou are coming over the ridge. And they're starting to, you know, I knew Jeremy and I got there pretty quick and they're starting to see us all of a sudden. And I turn around and there's a cameraman right behind the Jeremy. So he, he wasn't getting left behind either. But uh, again, these caribou would spot us and they'd look and be like, huh, I wonder what that is. And then they would just continue on their migration. So the first bull that looked like he was worth shooting came over the hill, and uh, but he was walking fast, and I did everything but yell his name, and yeah. he he would not, he no hesitation, stop. never even looked yeah. at us. Yeah. And so Jeremy says, "Here comes another one," and he's walking slower. So this bull's walking fairly slow. Compared and, to everything but, else, he was walking really slow. Cause yeah. Almost at a jog. Yeah. yeah. And and even when you're hunting elk or anything, you know, when you take a shot at a moving animal, uh, you got to do some compensating and it's a risk. Yeah. But this is, this is caribou hunting. And, I mean, they're going to be moving. And so I drew knowing that Jeremy was going to have the range for me. And, uh, and this bull was 55. And I held my pin in front of his brisket by mm-hmm. oh, a foot. And I still hit him a little bit uh, back and a little bit high. It almost looked like I hit him in the back straps. But as he ran, 
he the blood was coming pretty good so i knew i'd hit the the artery along the spine right and he's heading for the notak river and at <laughs> full blast down the hill which which you can't cross <laughs> yeah and i knew I, I and there was about a 15 foot high bank that drops off the tundra into the rock gravel bar <laughs> and then to the shore of the river and he bails off of that bank and i'm expecting to see his antlers going across the river at any minute yeah and I'm glassing and glassing. We're all three standing there wondering. And we're not don't see any antlers. <laughs> well, then I think, well, he's going to be floating down the river any minute. Yeah. And but you could kind of tell it was a sort of a death run because he was really yeah. moving. And no floating. So we said, well, let's hike down there. And we waded across this little slough without our waders and everything. <laughs> And meanwhile, behind us is thousands of caribou coming over this hill and dropping this valley. Wow. The sun is shining. And we weren't allowed to use a drone, but that was that was a crime that we could not launch the drone and get footage of that migration because right. they were had the sun set at their backs and it was just a sight to behold. Yeah. Well, anyway, we get down to the bank and and Jeremy looks over the bank first, and he looks down there. There he is. There's something wrong with him. <laughs> I said, what do you mean there's something wrong with him? And I look, and here is two antlers are touching. And oh. here, here it turns out that he, he must have died when he launched off the bank. And he never touched the ground for about 20 feet. And the first thing to hit the ground was his shovels. Oh. And head first dirt nap right into the frozen rocks. Oh. Busted both shovels off and uh, had pretty nice devil shovels too. And he busted them both off and he busted his left main beam right out of his skull. Oh, man. So, I mean, he. <laughs> right at the pedicle? <laughs> Oh, yeah, there was about a oh, half God. inch of bone all the way around the pedicle. Oh, wow. And yeah. uh, he's laying there, and it looked like he got hit head on by a Mack truck. Oh. And <laughs> so, anyway, uh, I, I had my caribou slam. Yeah. But, uh, that was your final pretty, one that you needed for the slam, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, neither one of us was all that concerned about score and big bulls in fact if you were gonna hunt in the hunt we went on and your focus was a 370 bull or nothing you are really in an uphill climb because you have no control over what's coming over that hill sure and uh you could wait for days and weeks to get a crack at a, at a big bull yeah. and you know if you're in northwest territory something mountain caribou where the resident herds or whatever it's a little different story but Right. But for these caribou, I mean, this one came over the hill, and I was ready, and I wanted him, and I was damn happy to get him. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to hold well, his antler up in order to take the kill photos, but uh, <laughs> it was quite the evening, and uh, oh, we were done. Hopefully your taxidermist was able to kind of patch that back together. Yeah, there's um, no patch in those animals. There's no patching? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. He was <laughs> they, were, they were destroyed. But so we, what is it? we got it all packed up on our backs, and, and what did we have? Maybe 
half mile to camp, not even that probably. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, and we're packing out in the dark, of course, but we had a full moon to our left and the Northern lights at our back. And, you know, the only word we could come up with, despite the frozen, frozen temperatures was, it was just an epic hunt. Yeah. You know, it was epic. That was the coolest night. I mean, we were, you know, got that caribou broken down right as it's getting dark, the full moon's coming up and then we're hiking back to camp in the, in the complete darkness and the Northern lights were unreal. I mean, it was, they just went on for hours and hours that night. Just, just the most incredible show. It was, it was awesome. I mean, of course, having all that meat on your back when there's grizzlies around, that adds a little element of excitement too. (laughs) But there was uh, a lot of bear sign, a lot of bear sign right on the beach where we were camped. We never saw one. Thank yeah, you, I guess. But saw some wolves yeah. one morning, but no, yep. no bear. Yeah. And the, and Jared had told us to be careful because the bears were really hungry this year, and they were having lots of problems with them in camps. <laughs> oh, yeah. so so we were kind of watching, but yeah, it was a great great time. Jeremy's a great guy to hunt with. He's one of those guys that appreciates every single thing about a hunt, every little nuance, every little sight, sound, and smell. And, uh, and, and those are the kind of guys you'd like to hunt with. And I really had a great time. Well, it yeah, sounds it like, fun. I mean, just you, your description of the, of the migration coming over the hill and how sad you were that you weren't able to launch the drone to get video footage of it. And, yeah. you know, how yeah, I was killing the life, camera, man. How often in your life do you see something like that? You've that got was, to appreciate oh, it. That was you National know. Geographic stuff yep. right there, you know, yep. the cameraman. Uh, it was, it was killing him. But uh, yeah, uh, nothing we could do, you know, to get a permit. You yeah, you have to abide by the rules, and and they're pretty strict up there. Yeah, yeah, the rules were in in the National Preserve. We couldn't fly the drone, right? That's yeah. Well, a lot of states now, you can't. I mean, you get such great footage with a drone, and of course. Uh, if you air footage of a drone from a drone, a lot of people automatically assume you're using it to locate animals. And uh, obviously we would never do anything like that. So some states just make it illegal. Some states it's not, but um, that would have been epic there. And we were done, but uh, even if we'd aired the footage, people, oh, I see where they found, how they found those caribou, you know, so you have to kind of watch out, but yeah. Well, so for somebody that wants to go out and do something like this, wants to put, where would you, where do they even start? Like, what advice would you have for somebody that tells you, you know, Kurt, I want to start working on a DIY caribou hunt. Um, What, where do they start? Well, obviously you have to decide which species you want to hunt. Um, And there's five subspecies of caribou. And uh, right now, if you have never taken the Quebec Labrador species, you're probably not going to get a a caribou slam unless you're young. But uh, caribou populations across the whole North American continent are in pretty rough shape. And nobody really understands why. And And the the Quebec Labrador is the one that's in the worst shape, correct? Yeah, yeah. The the George River herd in uh, Quebec is uh, one of several herds, but at one time they numbered 750,000 caribou. 
And last year, the herd was estimated at 8,100. The 99% uh, drop. And that number was up 47% from the previous year. So there was only like 5,500 caribou in the George River herd the year before. But that was the first increase in the last 25 years. The calf production was way up. And so it could be that the, the caribou in Quebec are on their way back. But this is continent-wide. It stretches from Newfoundland, where caribou numbers are down about 60%, to all the way to Alaska. And, um, you know, the, the Western Arctic herd that we hunted was peaked out in 2003 at 490,000 animals. But today it's around 244,000. Right. And uh, it did rebound a little bit in the last couple of years, but if the numbers go down to 200,000, then it's going to trigger some changes in harvest goals in Alaska. But uh, the Mulchatna herd is down 93%, and in the Northwest Territories, caribou herds are down about 50%. And, <laughs> and uh, I hunted McKay Lake years ago and had a really good hunt, but uh, it's closed now. So... You can hunt woodland caribou in Newfoundland, and I hunted there in 2018 and had a pretty good hunt. Saw quite a few caribou, and uh, and I, I killed a bull there. And then uh, I've hunted Quebec a couple times years ago and shot a couple, three bulls there. And then you can hunt Nunavut for Central Canada barren ground. And, uh, and then you can hunt mountain caribou in the Northwest Territories. Uh, I did that in 2017, and they're a little bit more stable than uh, the other caribou herds. They're not quite as in quite as bad a shape, but they're all down some. And if you go to every biology uh, department in all those provinces and states, nobody has an explanation for it. Some believe it's a 40-year cycle, and some believe it's a 100-year cycle. It's not right. disease because they're not finding a bunch of dead animals. Um, and and uh, other factors like predators and things like that uh, wouldn't be consistent across the entire North American continent. So, and, and uh, just so that people know, like hunting pressure is basically insignificant on yeah, it's not caribou the herds. Hunting pressure is nothing like, on caribou. It takes, yeah. So it, it is something... It, it, whether it's disease or reproduction or it, it, it's not food supply, is it? I, that's, it's a mystery. Well, then. yeah, some, uh, some people believe, you know, the caribou, they eat lichen and lichen is very slow growing. Mm -hmm. So if a herd of 750,000 caribou sweep through an area and they wipe out the lichen, it, take, it can take 20 years for it to grow back. So uh, it could be that it's just a food supply thing. And, uh, and and then there's also some concern it has something to do with fawn or calf reproduction. Mm -hmm. So it, it's pretty much a mystery. So it's down all over. Now, if you're 20 years old, you probably will see a day when the Quebec uh, herd, the George River and the Leaf River herds come back. But And they could come back with gangbusters. Like I said, they almost doubled from last year, mostly because of calf reproduction in the George River herd. And that's the first time in 25 years that they saw any kind of an increase. So, so it, it could be on the way back. But, but I wanted an Alaska and uh, Alaska barren ground. 
And so once you figure that out, if you're going to go to Alaska, obviously you can hunt without a guide. That's the only place you can hunt caribou without a guide. And uh, that's the way we wanted to do it. So um, then you start finding a transporter. And you have to do that early, like you should be doing that right now, because a lot of these transporters are getting uh, booked up. And uh, they only got so many flights they can make in a year. So uh, that's what we did. We found a spot with uh, Jared. And then uh, once once I had the dates booked, then you got to start the rest of your planning. And, of course, with any hunt, uh, what I wanted to do is ship some stuff up there because I didn't want to have to carry it all with me on the plane. So I got a, a big tub and I filled it with all our mountain house, all of our food, our our. Uh, cooking utensils or like we had jet boils and we brought a backup jet boil because if your jet boil dies you've got serious problems and uh, uh and then uh we all had some other camping stuff in there and then i had to order butane canisters from the store in kotzebu prepay for them and then have them delivered to the uh, flight service uh, because you got to have butane and you can't ship it or you can't fly with it. And then, of course, you got to have your water, water filters and all that. I've had Giardia twice, so I do not drink out of anywhere, anytime. <laughs> not doing that again. And, uh, and then all your other planning and a uh, single tent for three guys. We had three guys. Perfect hunt for two guys. Yeah, and uh, we paid like thirty-one fifty for our all our flights in and out with meat and everything else per person. So that was inclu- that was including your commercial flight to nope. Anchorage. No, nope, nope. That was just, just from Kotzebu into the bush. Okay, so you've got the expense of the commercial flight to Alaska, um, mm-hmm. and then it was thirty-one hundred for your flights into the bush and back out of the bush. Right. Um, so you're you're looking at um, it, what what other expenses are there? Well, licenses, license. I think, were six hundred bucks, and um, hunting license was one hundred and sixty, I believe. And uh, and then uh, you know, I mean, mountain house isn't cheap. You got to buy all that, and um, uh, your flight from Anchorage to Kotzebu. So, I mean, you're, you're still going to probably drop five grand, but an yeah. uh, uh, outfitted caribou hunt right now, you're looking closer to double digits right? Um, for a lot of caribou hunts right now. And, uh, and of course, everybody knows who's done DIY hunts. Uh, it's more satisfying to do it that way. Uh, it's more work. Uh, and your success is sweeter, mm-hmm. but uh, if you're only going to do it once, you know, then you might want to consider it's, the outfitting it's a trip. But I would do this hunt again. I mean, that was my first time of uh, doing this particular type of hunt, and I would do it again in a heartbeat, knowing what I know now. It's always the uncertainty yeah. that keeps people, uh, you know, I might go a little a week earlier. <laughs> to keep because yeah. because if we'd had any precipitation at all with those temperatures, we'd probably still be there. So <laughs> yeah, so uh, a, a warmer bag, yeah, warmer bag, warmer boots. But Another thing I learned is you know, to keep it to eighty pounds. Yeah. You know, 
another thing I learned is I haven't done a lot of camping in really cold weather. You know, usually you're in September, you know, in the mountains and stuff like that. And we're starting to get into the single digits and teens. I just brought a Thermarest Neo Air air mattress and and then my sleeping bag. And I thought that was good. But you were going to want some kind of a sleeping pad to insulate you from the ground because the ground was frozen when we got there, hard as a rock. So uh, we, uh, that was one thing I wish I'd have done different was had a, I ended up piling a bunch of extra clothes on top of the uh, air mattress just to keep the cold from sort of getting into me. Mm. And then we did stay overnight at the Nulogvik Hotel. And that was 380 bucks a night. And that was three yeah. of us in there. But anytime you go on this kind of a trip, you always want to fly in the day before because you have to leave time for your gear to catch up. If something happens in an airport somewhere, you have to leave time for it to catch up to you. So it sounds like if a guy's looking to do it, he can budget approximately $5,000, somewhere in that range, um, to try and get this done. And it also sounds to me like going with a reputable transporter who might really know the area, know where he's dropping you, understand the migration routes through there, that's got to be super important. It sounds like if you yeah. didn't have the guy that you did, it's just a complete yeah. shot in the dark. Yeah, there's always stories of transporters that drop guys off and and uh, they just basically get rid of them. And uh, so you have to you know do your research and get your references and talk to people that have have done it but i mean when we got when we got there i saw the condition of jared's planes i mean i've been on flights i've been on every kind of bush plane that you can possibly imagine and i've been on some that had duct tape holding it together Mm. and uh, jared's planes were all impeccable i mean they looked like they had just come off the assembly line and he had two of them and and you know you kind of can tell how things are taken care of and and uh, he knew where the caribou were going to be, and he put us right on them. They showed up just like he said they would. And, of course, he's not infallible. He could, uh, he could, uh, you know, might not be as good at it one day as he is the next, but nobody is. Right. So The other right. thing I liked about, you know, Jared being our transporter is that he's a hunter himself. You know, mm-hmm. He loves, I mean, he's a big hunter himself. So he, I think he, I don't know, has a little more appreciation for what we're trying to do because, a lot of those transporters are just doing tours, like nature tours, you know, flying people around yeah. to see animals and see the ocean and see the mountains and they come back. So, you know, if they're not a hunter and they're, and most of their clients aren't hunters, they're just sightseers, man, they probably don't really care where they drop you. Yeah. yeah. He knew what we were looking to do. And, and uh, um, I mean, I would have liked to have been able to cross the river. But no matter where you go, there's going to be some place you can't get to. You yeah. Know? yeah. Uh, it's, it's, there's rivers everywhere. So uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a great experience. And like I said, it, it always feels better when you do it on your own. And, uh, but a guided hunt is going to up your odds, obviously, if uh, you want to just do one caribou hunt. You know, then you might, but even if you pay 10 grand for a caribou hunt, you're not guaranteed an animal. Yeah. So, yeah. and, and I've been 
on a guided hunt where I saw far less caribou than what you guys saw on that trip, where we were like hunting individuals that we would see, that we would glass up from a long distance. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that that was a guided hunt. So it can, it can happen either way. Um, one of the things that I wasn't prepared for the first time that I went was, you know, when you get out in the tundra, it looks like you're in the prairie hunting mule deer or, uh, or antelope kind of, and, you know, you look at a point that might be a quarter mile of away or a quarter mile away, uh, on the prairie and you're there in five minutes relative, relatively easily on that tundra man, covering a, <laughs> covering a half a mile is, is a task and, and covering a half a mile with meat on your back is can be really tough i mean everything the ground moves underneath your feet uh it's it's just it's tough to haul through and everything's wet and there's there's so many things that you aren't necessarily prepared for the first time that you go and then in a situation like you guys were in if that weather comes in and socks in you've got to be prepared to stay longer than you might have uh thought you were going to if the pilots can't get in correct yeah yeah that's a that's a huge consideration because if it would have started snowing uh we could have been in trouble and we were the last guys to hunt uh mm-hmm. when 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 jared brought us out he was done for the year and mm-hmm. he told us when he dropped us off kill your caribou and then no sightseeing you get out of there you call me yeah. and i'll come and get you there ain't there's no sightseeing till the end of your hunt which right. was uh, uh, within one day, we understood exactly what he was talking about there. Because <laughs> if we'd had precipitation move in when we we're sitting with twenty degree highs for the day, uh, that could have been disaster. And if you got to get a helicopter, that costs a lot of money. Oh goodness! Well, <clears throat> but uh, uh, the curious thing, though, you know, when you consider DIY type hunts or this kind of somebody taking their first big excursion. The curious thing that I've always seen with, uh, with guys that have never been on a hunt where they've spent several thousand dollars is, is getting them convinced to do that first hunt, mm-hmm. to go that first time. Because at the time, you know, they're thinking, oh man, 3,000 bucks or 3,500 bucks, that's a lot of money. And no doubt it is. And for some people, it's more money than it is for other people. But what you find out is when these guys take that first trip, almost invariably on their way home, they're thinking about where they're going next year. Mm-hmm. They're going to do at least one big trip every year after that because they know that life is short. And you can't spend your life wishing you would have done something. And when you when you look and say you're talking five grand for a, a wilderness caribou hunt, I mean we're talking serious wilderness and a serious wilderness experience. And you have to be mentally tough and physically prepared. But uh, if you're talking five thousand bucks and you pay your deposit in March. You buy this and that in April and a couple more things and a couple more things here and save up or book two years in advance. That money pretty soon is gone and spent. And it means absolutely nothing 
Mm-hmm. And when you get on that plane and you go on the hunt, it has to remain, continue to mean nothing. You don't want to go on that trip and be thinking to yourself every day, oh man, I spent 5,000 bucks. I got to get a caribou or this is going to be a disaster. <laughs> you know, you have True. to just say the money's gone. I'm having an adventure and you have to enjoy it. And and that's where the mental toughness comes in, both in when you got to exert yourself for a lot of things or uh, or or just the, the mental preparation and, and things aren't going good. Because there, I'll oh, tell you, yeah. there was a couple of days there where I looked at Jeremy and like, man, sorry, I got you into this. Because <laughs> we were freezing. I'm thinking, oh, man, here I convinced him to go on this hunt and and uh, oh. we're about to die of hypothermia <laughs> but uh, but that last night after we got your bowl back to camp we had the campfire going we're cooking more steaks the northern lights are going crazy just non-stop i mean and we didn't want to go to bed because we knew the next day we were leaving and we didn't want it to be over like you know i think it was two when we, we got in the sack wasn't it yeah i think it was about two in the morning because it was yeah. just I don't know. The winds finally calmed down. The campfire was warm. The northern lights were going. The steak was good. And we knew we were going home the next day. We just stayed up talking about it. It was, yeah, I'll always, always remember that trip. I mean, you know, any of, I remember all my hunts, but some of them are just, there's more adventure, more experience, and and more stories to tell. And that was definitely one of them. Yeah, certain moments that stick, you know, like that, like you say, that campfire moment will always stick when that steaks were sizzle in that pan and, and, uh, the mountain house was safely tucked in the tub and (laughs) (laughs) the the longer you guys talk about this hunt, the more, on the one hand, the more grateful I get that I didn't actually go, (laughs) but then on the other hand, like you're talking about, um, those hunts where you overcome challenge, the ones where you experience some misery on them for a little while and, you know, doubt creeps in and mm-hmm. things like that. Those are the ones that end up really being the most memorable of your entire career, you know, and, you know, there might've been some miserable moments along that, but you know, that is, that's the kind of thing that you can get when you're when you're going on that style of hunt. On a DIY hunt where you're dropped off, you dealing with the elements, dealing with the challenges, it's all on you. Your success mm-hmm. or failure is all on you. And like you said earlier, Kurt, um, the satisfaction and the memories that you create when you do do it that style, th- there's something extra special about them. It's not that they aren't when you go on... Uh, on a guided hunt and in a lot of situations especially when you're going far from home it just makes sense to go with someone who has knowledge of the area if you can afford to go with the guided hunt a lot of times it makes sense but when you do do it like this when you do do it on your own it's something that is so valuable to you later on you know when you come back it's something that you never forget and you hear you guys talking about it it makes me wish that I was there, even if I had turned into an icicle. Yeah, and it's always important on who you go with, you know. Yeah. You don't pick, a, you don't go on a hunt like this and and pick your hunting partner carelessly. 
Yeah. Because uh, this is not the type of a hunt that you want to try and get by with somebody you don't get along with or somebody that's going to be crying to go home after three days, you know. And so those are that's always a major consideration and adds a lot a different element to every hunt. For example, I my two sons and I drew Arizona elk tags this year. So now I'm all jacked up for a father-son elk hunt in, in uh, Arizona. And so to me, regardless of how that hunt turns out, the planning and preparation has already started and I'm, I'm all excited for it. And I'm going to have a good time one way or the other hunting with my two sons. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that'll mean one thing. And then you go on a hunt for brown bears or for mountain caribou where it's all intense and you're working like crazy. I have a mountain goat hunt in BC scheduled. That's going to be mostly focused on physical preparation and, and my hunting partner. I don't have a hunting partner on that one. I have a cameraman, but that's going to be a whole different kind of hunt. But if you're going to do uh, uh, two or three guys going to Alaska or even four guys, you just got to pick the right guys and prepare yourself mentally for a great hunt. Yeah, because that is something that can absolutely absolutely ruin it is if you have some personality conflicts and you're tired, you're exhausted. There's Mm -hmm. times where you hit those lows and your outlook isn't very good and it's so easy to get grouchy. It's so easy to get really negative and you've got to, you got to make sure that you have somebody that you're compatible with that, you know, you can, you can, uh, dodge the punches and, and, and come out of the other side and have a good experience with, um, that that's, that's true with all kinds of different hunts, but especially so on something like this. Yeah. <clears throat> yep, for sure. Well, we're just over an hour here, guys. I think we'll wrap it up. Kurt, I, I, I want to have you on, you know, uh, some more in the future. Um, there you've, you have been one of my mentors. Um, like I said, at the beginning of this, you're, you know, one of my best buddies out there. Um, and you know, I know that out of a lot of television guys, let's say, um, this is one that earned his stripes. You know, you go back and you look at the old pictures of, of young Kurt Wells. He, <laughs> he looks like Clint Eastwood when he was younger for sure. And, uh, and all of those DIY elk hunts and you've been doing it a long time. You have a wealth of knowledge and, uh, we're going to have you on again and we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. So, um, hope everybody enjoyed it. Hope you got something out of it. Um, watch for this episode of Bowhunter TV that will air on both the sportsman's channel and the outdoor channel coming in either July or August. You'll probably have to check your listings to find out exactly when it is, but it sounds like it was a pretty dang epic hunt and, uh, I can't wait to see it. So hope everybody enjoyed it. Thanks for coming on, Kurt. And uh, we'll see you down the road, brother. Thanks for having me.